Well, recently I have had the honor to speak from this pulpit, actually last year a couple times and this year, and I started a series on the Beatitudes. And so I'm going to continue with that this morning. The uh, Beatitudes are the opening to the Sermon on the Mount, and the Sermon on the Mount goes from Matthew 5 to 7, and Jesus begins with the Beatitudes, which have been kind of has been called uh, sort of a, a, a reiteration of the Ten Commandments. The first of the Beatitudes is found in Matthew 5.3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And to be poor in spirit is to have a proper perspective of who I am before a holy God. The second is, blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted, Matthew 5, 4. Mourning, in part, has to do with a recognition of my sin and a sensitivity to my sin. And it's also part of uh, a holiness uh, introduction to the Beatitudes. The third is, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Meekness is generally defined as being gentle, but it also has to do with giving preference to other people in honor, in service. And the f- two weeks ago, the fourth beatitude, we talked about uh, in Matthew 5, 6, blessed are they who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Righteousness is a product, you may recall, of being poor in spirit, of mourning over my sin, and, um, and being meek, giving preference to one another on honor. It was a trans- transition, a pivot in the Beatitudes, which are being uh, merciful, being pure in heart, and a peacemaker. Righteousness is the, sort of the benchmark of the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, there was an outline included with the notes about the disciplines of righteousness. Somebody suggested to me this week that those disciplines looked awful similar to these seven habits, which is, they're all listed in there, plus a few more. Well, this morning, I would like to develop the conversation around the, the fifth beatitude, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, Matthew 5, 7. What does it mean to be merciful? How is that expressed in my behavior as a Christian. And what in the world do you mean by hard mercy? Mercy is a soft word. Mercy is a feminine word. Mercy is gracious. Hard is not none of that. What is hard mercy? We'll talk about that. My grandfather, William McIntosh, emigrated from Scotland to Scranton, Kansas, sometime in the century before last. I guess it would have been early part of last century. And he was a full-blown Scotsman, loved his Scotch whiskey. And the legend is that he was an alcoholic most of his life. He died early. And he, uh, one of the stories that I heard from my parents was that he chased my dad around a cornfield uh, with a shotgun in a drunken stupor. Can't imagine that was very fun. So he died early, and my dad uh, joined the Army shortly after Pearl Harbor and spent a career in the Aleutian Islands and the Pacific, neither of which were particularly fun places at that time. But he spent a, a part t- toward the end of his career, his Army career, he was a drill, drill instructor, drill sergeant. 
And so my brothers and I get together. We're getting together next week. We're going to spend some time together. We talk about, uh, um, you know, catch up on how our families are doing. And invariably, the conversation comes around to dad. And our conclusion is that dad's parenting skills were informed by his father, who was an alcoholic, and by his experience in the army. And, uh, and some, some of the stories are fairly comical and some are, are tragic. It's amazing to me because some of those experiences were violent. And it's amazing to me that as we're in our 60s, my oldest brother's in the 70s, that it still influences our th conversations and our thinking today. Our mother was a gentlewoman a godly and righteous woman who prayed for us every day and, and she's the one we credit with having any sanity in our home. When we stood over my dad's casket after he died, my brother said to me, well, at least he had the good sense to marry mom. I tell you all this uh, not to gain your sympathy, but I want to I just tell you that I come from a perspective of having to practice being merciful, having to practice forgiveness. And I suspect there are a lot of people in this room who share that experience. All the studies that I have done so far on the Beatitudes have been personally convicting and have brought things that I need to uh, pay attention to in my own life. And that's part of the reason that I do it. It uh, involves a, a more intense study on a particular topic. But I will tell you that being merciful has been the most compelling of all so far. Mercy is defined in part as showing undeserved kindness, cousin to grace, unmerited favor. But the most active ingredient, the most active substance in showing mercy is forgiveness. And you see that in the scriptures. I've had several occasions to read books on the subject of mercy and forgiveness. And what I've concluded in those books is that most people, when they write about forgiveness, are talking about the benefits to you personally. If you will forgive, then you don't suffer the, the consequences, the emotional and physical consequences of, of being bitter, of being unforgiving. And there's a truth to that. That is true. But that's not the main reason why we forgive. Number one in your notes, most teaching on forgiveness is that it is something that you do for yourself. Something that you do for yourself. I think most of the books that have been written on forgiveness are directed to people who've been hurt by life, have suffered a, a deep pain. They find it difficult to forgive. And the teaching then is that, well, you forgive to benefit yourself to free yourself from the consequences of a bitter spirit. A minister friend I, uh, that I know had a daughter, I'll call her Mary, and she married a guy in the church, I'll call him Bob, and they, were, uh, they were, had great hopes for the marriage, they were going to accomplish great things in their, in their life, and uh, over time, however, Bob became bored with the marriage and began to have relationships, have affairs with other women. The marriage was 
soon headed on a course to divorce, to termination. But in an effort to punish Mary, Bob turned, they had three kids by that time, turned the three kids against Mary. They were living in a different state. He lived, uh, she was not able to sustain them because she didn't have a means for a living at the time. And so they lived with him. And he convinced them that she was evil that they would prefer to live with him in his exotic lifestyle and not with her and all of her Christian teaching. Man is a minister, and he had spent much of his career talking on this subject, gave many messages on the subject of forgiveness. And in his mind, in his heart, he believed that he had forgiven Bob for this damage that Bob had done to their family. But in time, he began to have rash, have a rash on his skin. He had red spots on various parts of his body. He went to the doctor, and the doctor said, well, we can treat that, um, but with a series of injections, and they'll cost a lot of money. And uh, so, well, we can start that. And so um, my friend said, okay, that's fine. But in the course of the conversation, the doctor asked him, is there somebody in your life that you haven't forgiven? My friend was shocked by the question and gave it serious thought, took it before God in prayer. And God revealed to him a bitter spirit that remained for his ex-son-in-law. And in tears before God, he repented of it. And shortly, the rash went away. A couple days it started getting lighter and a week it was gone. What was amazing about that to my friend is that he was completely unaware that he was harboring this bitterness toward his former son-in-law. Number two, being merciful can be hard. Being merciful can be hard and sometimes people refuse to do it. People tend to avoid forgiving others for offenses, particularly if they're deeply personal. We recognize that restoring damage caused by some act in the past is impossible. You can't fix it. You can't undo words spoken. You can't undo damage done. And so in our hearts, we can be led to believe that revenge is better. We talk about my anger empowering me. Revenge is sweet, and revenge is best served cold. The justice that I feel and that bitterness that I feel justifies my need for righteousness. Number three, in your notes, bitterness is a dead end. Romans 12, do not pay any man evil for evil. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. If it be possible, as much as it lies within you, live at peace with all men. My dearly beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Vengeance is the business of God. And when I presume upon myself the notion that I can inflict vengeance, that I can repay for the wrong that has been done to me, puts myself emotionally in the place of God. 
And that's dangerous. That's a dangerous place to be because it affects my emotions. It affects my ability to sustain emotion. It, it, makes, it, it makes me bitter and caustic and cynical. Makes it harder to maintain relationships. Number four in your notes, forgiveness is a command of God. Forgiveness is a command of God. Matthew, this Matthew 18 passage, I'm going to read it at length because it's sort of the classic uh, scripture on the subject of forgiveness. And it has several uh, salient points that I want to bring up from that passage. I, I, I won't be able to deal with it in detail given the time I have. But let me, let's read it together. Matthew, Peter then came to him and said, Lord, how often shall I, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Until seven times, Jesus said to him, I say to you, not until seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who took account of his servants. And when he had begun to reckon, one of them was brought to him, which owed him 10,000 talents. But he had nothing to pay. His Lord commanded him to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. The servant therefore fell down and worshipped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion and loosed him and forgave him his debts. But the same servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred pence. And he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. And his fellow servant fell down at his feet and besought him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. But he would not, and went and cast him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when his fellow servants saw what was done, they were very sorry. And came and told their Lord all that had been done. Then his Lord, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had mercy on you? And his Lord was angry and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due to him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do to you if you do not from your hearts forgive everyone his brother their trespass. Now there are a number of conclusions that you could draw from such a passage. I'm going to suggest three this morning. Number A, forgiveness is the truest expression of mercy. Forgiveness is the truest expression of mercy because oftentimes it requires my own humility. And because it requires, because it's hard. It's a hard thing to do. Verse 33 says, Should you not have also compassion on your fellow servant, even as I had mercy on you? Number B, showing mercy is an attribute of God. We're told we love him because he first loved us. And as God loved us, we should also love one another. In this passage, in verse 33 again, by extension, we show mercy on others because he writes, Should you not also have compassion on your fellow servant? as I have had on you. We, we resemble God in character when we show mercy. And number C, probably the most compelling, is God will judge harshly those who refuse to forgive. And the Lord was angry, verse 35, and delivered him to the tormentors 
till he should pay all that was due to him. So likewise shall my heavenly Father also do to you, if you do not from your hearts forgive everyone his brother their trespass. I had a conversation this week about two Christian brothers who had had a long-standing dispute and they refused to forgive one another. And one of them was asked, well, what are you going to do in heaven? Are you going to carry on this dispute in the next life? And the response was, well, heaven's a big place. I think I can avoid this guy. It's amazing the intellectual gymnastics that we Christians are willing to go through to try to justify our sin. Imagine standing before the bema seat. Well, yeah, I know I'm supposed to forgive people, and you're pretty serious about it. Um, sending him to the tormentor sounds pretty, pretty grim. Uh, but, you know, I thought you'd give me a pass on this. After all, I was deeply offended. <laughs> when it comes to the subject of forgiveness, God is immovable very direct and clear in this teaching. This is just one. I listed several other passages on the back of your notes uh, because I didn't have time to go through them all, but, but the theme of forgiveness is you ought to forgive because you were forgiven. Number five in your notes, the end goal of showing mercy is reconciliation. Reconciliation. We love God because he first loved us. We reconcile with each other because he reconciled with us first. Ephesians 2, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, and having slain the enmity thereby, came and preached peace to you who were far off and to them that were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the house of all of God. Reconciling the world to Jesus Christ is the heart of the Great Commission. It's why we're here. It's why we don't immediately go to heaven when we accept Christ. We have work to do, and that work is involved in reconciling the world to Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.18, And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and who has given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespass unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Has committed unto us the word word of reconciliation the word of reconciliation imagine trying to be an example trying to give a testimony to my friends reconciling them to God by the word of reconciliation and harboring a refusal to reconcile myself to my brother to my Christian brothers and sisters how do you suppose that works do you suppose God will honor my testimony to the world when I refuse to reconcile to my brother? I don't think so. God is serious about reconciliation. So now comes the how-to part. 
and I, this is not by any means comprehensive, but a few thoughts that I'd like to share with you in the time that I have remaining about how to show mercy when forgiving is hard. The first one is number one, in your, uh, number one under this section, separate fact from fiction. There's a common concept among guys, and particularly older guys. The older I get, the better I was. The old, I've seen it on t-shirts. The older I get, the better I was. So the older I get, the more touchdowns I scored in, on the high school football team. And the higher my GPA was, and the, and the more attention I received from the cheerleaders. The older I get, the better I was. The interesting thing is that's human nature. We tend to embellish our stories over time. I can remember telling stories to friends, and my wife says, I don't remember any of that. I certainly didn't remember this detail or that. Well, uh, telling a story, is, I mean, it's just fun to embellish. But the problem is the same principle works in reverse. When I've experienced a hurt, and someone offends me, the tendency is to embellish over time. The words that they use are harsher. The tone is more hostile, or the behavior that they exhibited was more outrageous than perhaps it really was. And so one of the useful things to do about forgiving someone is to separate fact from fiction. What really happened? What was the real nature of the offense? Because it tends to get enhanced in the telling. More realistic perspective can be gained as I recount the story to someone who is willing to check me on the details willing to hold me accountable on the fact and willing to perhaps tell me things that are unpleasant to hear. Separate facts from fiction. Number two, recognize that your offender was created in the image of God. There's a a situation that happens in collective bargaining where you sit across the table from some people and it always begins very graciously, you know, we're going to get a, an agreement here and it's ever, ever going to make the place better and we're, everybody's going to be happy. But then you get into disagreement and where you say A and they say B and you can't, you can't agree and particularly if it's involving money. And so what happens is that one side begins to demonize the other. We make them subhuman. We make them ogres and monsters. Because we do that to justify our own, to think, to to disagree with my position in a bargaining is irrational. So they must be stupid. And so I'm justified in making them subhuman and dehumanizing them. Colossians 1:15 and 16, one of my favorite passages in Scripture. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created. And those that are in heaven and, the, and on the earth, invisible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things. In Bible school, I was told all means all in the scriptures, and that's all all means. All things, including this person that I despise, was created by God and for him. Some of you who have hair that looks like mine may recall a lady, I think I've got her picture here, named Corrie Ten Boom. 
Her, her story was published in the book A Hiding Place in 1971. And it's the story of the Ten Boom family in Holland in a, in a town called Harlem. And it's on, halfway on the rail line between the airport and Amsterdam. And it's a museum today. You can visit it. I would strongly recommend it. They were watchmakers in Harlem during the war, during the Nazi occupation. And they built a room in their house, uh, built a brick facade, and you, got on, you went into a closet and you could turn right and you get into this room that's about three foot by six foot in space, and they had Jews there from the Nazis. Well, in time, somebody reported to the Nazi officials that they were hiding Jews, and that was illegal. You couldn't do that. And so, um, this, as the story goes, um, the father, who was a, the watchmaker, the original watchmaker, he's a 90-year-old guy, and the Nazis come to his house, and they, they say, we know you're hiding Jews, and we're going to haul you off to the, to the prison camp. But the soldier wanted to offer clemency, and he says, I'll let you live in your house and die in your house if you will just tell me that you won't hide any more Jews. The man said, anyone who comes to my door for sanctuary will be welcome in my house. So they loaded him up in a truck. He was never seen again. The two sisters, Corey and her um, sister Betsy, were taken to Ravensbrück. Ravensbrück is a concentration camp in northern Germany at the time, and it was specifically for women. The numbers are that there were 130,000 inmates in Ravensbrück during the war, and it's reported that 90,000 out of those 130,000 either were killed in the camp or died from the conditions. Betsy, the sister of Corey, died at Ravensbrück, and she's quoted in the book famously, counseling Betsy, not Corey, not to hate. Don't hate Corey. There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. It's an amazing testimony, amazing character. So after the war, Corey holds, um, begins to uh, ministry to survivors of the war to help them process what they had been through so that they could reestablish a normal life again. She founded this, she started with her home house, her own house where their hiding place was, but then she got other houses of people who had died during the war and there was nobody living there, so she, she brought people into those houses and taught them the ministry of forgiveness. Legend is that she even took over a former concentration camp and made it a home for people to restore their lives. And the way she supported this was by going around doing speaking tours. She'd go to churches, and she would give a speaking, uh, give a message about her experiences in the concentration camp. And she would talk about forgiveness. And people would contribute money to her ministry, and that's how she sustained herself. And there's one story that I'll, I'll never forget, <clears throat> and I've, I've written it out here for you to, to review with me. It was at a church in service in Munich that I saw him the former SS man who stood guard at the shower room door at the processing center at Ravensbrück. 
He was the first of our actual jailers that I had seen since that time. And suddenly it was all there. The room full of mocking men, the heaps of clothing, Betsy's pain-drenched face. He came up to me as the church was emptying, beaming and bowing. How grateful I am for your message, Fraulein, he said. To think that, as you say, he has washed my sins away. His hand was thrust out to shake mine. And I, who had preached so often to the people of Blomendal, the need to forgive, kept my hand at my side. Even as the angry, vengeful thoughts boiled through me, I saw the sin of them. Jesus Christ died for this man. Was I going to ask for more? Lord Jesus, I pray, forgive me and help me forgive him. I tried to smile. I struggled to raise my hand. I could not. I felt nothing, not the slightest spark of warmth or charity. Can you imagine? I breathed the silent prayer again. Jesus, I cannot forgive him. Give me your forgiveness. As I shook his hand, the most incredible thing happened. From my shoulder, along my arm, and through my hand, a current seemed to pass from me to him. While my heart sprang, into my heart sprang a love for the stranger that almost overwhelmed me. And so I discovered that it is not our forgiveness anymore than our goodness. It's not our forgiveness anymore than our goodness that the world's healing hinges. But on his When he tells us to love our enemies, he gives, along with a command, the love itself. Number three in your notes, replace lies with truth. Replace lies with truth. Philippians 4, 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, If there be any praise, think on these things. It used to be that this passage of Scripture was required memorization in many major uh, university sororities and fraternities. It was a different world then. Because it was recognized that this this is a foundational principle beautifully stated for keeping our mental health, keeping our our minds squared away. Number four, acknowledge what cannot be changed and give it to God. In Matthew 5.23, we're told, if you bring your gift to the altar and remember that you have an offense with your brother, leave your gift and go and be reconciled to your brother. There is an immediacy to that passage. Don't wait. Do it now. The problem with allowing things to fester And to cook over time is that the anger can be compounded. There's that embellishment that we tend to do with with our offenses. If I have an offense with someone that's gone on for months or even years, it becomes increasingly difficult to forgive and to let it go. The prayer of St. Francis of Assisi applies here. God grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, 
and the wisdom to know the difference. It's a, a prayer that's often used in 12-step programs. Number five in your notes, choose to live a life free from bitterness. It's a choice, a decision that you can make. Paul writes to the Ephesians, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. I once had a conversation with a nurse who had an offense with a doctor. It might surprise you, it happens quite often. But this offense had been festering for 10 years. This lady refused to talk to this doctor. And I suggested that perhaps if a time were to come where they were to share responsibility for a patient, that that might be a problem. So I asked her, can you think of one human redeeming quality of this person? Couldn't do it. Couldn't think of one. I said, he's a doctor. He takes care of patients. He saves lives. You can't think of one thing that would be redeeming or humanizing to this person. Couldn't think of one, couldn't do it. It was amazing. I went on, I, I camped on that question for 10 minutes with this person, and she never relented. I've thought about that conversation a lot since then. What is it that makes us so entrenched in our anger and in our bitterness? Why do we keep it? Most people do what they do because it works. People do what they do because it works. It serves some purpose. It accomplishes some end or some goal. What would possibly be the goal from maintaining such an embittered spirit? Maybe she thought her anger would shield her from hurt. Maybe she thought her anger gave her power from being hurt again. Maybe, maybe it was a way of punishing him for his offense. The reality is, and where I concluded the conversation, is you're not accomplishing anything with this person. You're not fixing anything in this situation. What you are creating is a burned out, cynical woman who is old before your time. There's a final thought that I'd like to leave with on the subject of forgiveness. Number six in your notes, reconciliation is a coin with two sides. Reconciliation is a coin with two sides. Jesus has extended an invitation of reconciliation to the world. Many people that you know ignore it. Many people that we know mock it, make fun of it. It takes two parties to reconcile. Jesus extends the invitation. It's our obligation to accept it and to reconcile. Matter becomes even more challenging when it, become, when it comes to a relationship where there is abuse and an abusive relationship. One person desires to reconcile and the other does not. Not only do they not, but they continue to sustain the behavior that caused the fracture in the relationship in the first place. 
Now, I've known people who choose to stay in an abusive relationship, an abusive marriage, because they believe the humility honors God. And I don't judge that. But neither will I encourage my Christian brother or sister to remain in a physically or mentally abusive situation in the name of maintaining a commitment to a marriage vow. And I believe to exert that kind of pressure adds yet another kind of abuse that I would call spiritual abuse. To guilt people into staying in a damaging and self-destructive situation. I don't have it on slide, but I want you to listen to this passage from 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's in a contemporary English translation. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days. Paul is speaking about the church. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, but denying its power. What's his instruction? Have nothing to do with such people. Have nothing to do with such people. I speak here in the church. I'm talking about believers on both sides of this coin. This is a prophecy regarding apostasy in the church. This is when we know in our history that civilization is declining. I believe there's always been apostasy in the church. I believe there is apostasy today. And I suspect this prophecy means that it will get worse over time. The message of of the beatitude of showing mercy is forgiveness with the goal of reconciliation. And in the church, reconciliation is a commandment that is given to both sides. Loving one another, serving one another, giving preference to one another in honor are behaviors that are incompatible with those described in that passage in 2 Timothy. On the reverse side of your notes, I've listed a series of passages that I mentioned earlier um, that speak to the subject of forgiveness. This discussion, brief discussion this morning is by no means comprehensive, but there's the last one I'd like to direct your attention to at the very bottom. When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. To him who judges justly. So I would like to leave you this morning with a picture of a court. The court is in this room, and in the middle of the room stands the judge. Him who judges justly. And over here we have the accuser of the brethren. We have Satan, and over here we have our mediator, our savior, and our our, our, our mediator. The accuser says to me, says to you, you have broken God's law. You have damaged fellowship with God. You have sinned. And the wages of sin is death. It's in the book. 
If I were to die for my sins under those circumstances, that would be justice. But the mediator over here holds up his hand and says, wait a minute, I paid for that. I bore the penalty for that sin. I bore the shame and the pain and the abuse on the cross. That would be salvation. That would be redemption. But the great thing is, it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. My Savior is knocking on the door. He says, if you will open the door and let me in, I will have fellowship with you and you with me despite your transgression. That's not, just ju- that's not justice. And it's not even redemption. That is mercy. That is reconciliation. That is forgiveness. Amen. Our great God and Heavenly Father, we're just, uh, just, just amazed that you created us and that you desire fellowship with us. And I pray that that knowledge and that understanding will always move us, will always promote us to do things to your honor and to your glory. Not only did you create us and you redeem us, you desire fellowship with us. You desire companionship with us. And so I pray that we would be Christians of fellowship with Jesus Christ, that people will look at us and see in our love for each other and our, our reconciliation with each other the person and the body and the life of Jesus Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.